Hey everyone, it's Erin again, coming at you with this month's episode of The Way It Was, a podcast. I know these episodes usually go out on the second Thursday of each month, so I apologize for the delay here. Uh, the holidays can get pretty busy in the newsroom with everyone wrapping up projects uh, before vacation, and I've actually been working to confirm some last-minute details for this episode. Uh, so speaking of this episode, it's another tough one. No cheesy music here this month. It's about a chilly mid-December morning 56 years ago. It was a Thursday, around 7 a.m., and the children of Auburn, a tiny farming community five miles southeast of Greeley, were getting on their school bus as it weaved down Weld County's country roads. The bus wouldn't make it to school that morning, to Delta or Arlington Elementaries, to Meeker Junior High or to Greeley High School, It wouldn't make it past the second set of railroad tracks on its morning route. It would end there, in fact, at that railroad crossing, when the end of the school bus was met by a Union Pacific passenger train, barreling down the tracks on the final leg of its journey from Chicago to Denver. Twenty children died in that crash on December 14, 1961. They were as young as six and as old as 13. Their lives ended there at that crossing. Their stories, however, did not. This is episode 10 of The Way It Was, Back at the Crossing. There's something about holding a newspaper in your hands. There's a weight to it, a finality to seeing ink printed on paper. Last month, a copy of Iraqi Mountain News Special Edition showed up on my desk. It's 72 pages long in tabloid form, and it's a reprint of a 33-part series written by reporter Kevin Vaughn in 2007. The pages are 10 years old now, just slightly yellowed, and they crinkle a little when you lift them, like Christmas wrapping paper. The series is about the 1961 school bus crash that killed 20 children outside Greeley. And after telling anyone who would listen that that would be my subject for this month's episode of The Way It Was, one of my colleagues dug their copy out and plopped it on my desk. Vaughn's series takes you through the worst day in a lot of people's lives. Parents lost their children, brothers lost sisters, sisters lost brothers, and this series tells it from almost every possible perspective. Vaughn's work on The Crossing made him a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in 2008. The Rocky Mountain News has since closed, shuttering in 2009, but you can still find The Crossing online at thecrossingstory.com. And for this podcast, Kevin Vaughn was the first person I called. Before he took on the crash, starting in 2006, not much had been written about it. There were definitely no 33-chapter stories on it, at least. Or on its far-reaching effects, on the kids who got on that bus that day. 
and on the families of the children who never got off that bus. Here's Kevin. You may recognize his voice from two of my other podcasts. He talked to me a while back for my podcast on the murder of Peggy Hedrick, um, and then again for our episode on the Spring Creek flood of 1997. He starts out by running me through exactly how this series started out. So I was in college in the, in the mid-1980s when I, uh, I was doing, I was actually looking for a different story in the Denver Post on microfilm at the college library, and I came across the stories about the, uh, the accident, and I was pretty, pretty surprised, um, pretty surprised that I'd never heard about it, and, um, you know, immediately curious about so many things, particularly about, you know, what happened to everybody who survived, and, and how did the, the families who lost children, and the brothers and sisters who lost siblings, how did they, um, you know, deal with that over the course of their lives, and mm-hmm. and it was it was sort of always on my mind. I mean, for years and years, it was on my mind. And and as I started working in, you know, back then in newspapers, I um, you know, I covered a lot of crossing accidents. I worked in Fort Morgan, and I worked in Fort Collins, and there were a lot of a lot of crossing accidents. And in in the 1990s, there was one in particular that really um, stood out to me which was it was a young mother and her and her baby were both um killed in a in a crossing accident sort of now near Timnath on Harmony Road and mm-hmm. um every time I covered one of those you know I thought about about this accident and I kept thinking you know someday I should try to do a story that looks at the the long-term implications of something like this and so mm-hmm. Um, after I got to the Rocky, uh, you know, in the late 90s, I started thinking more seriously about it, and and uh, you know, it's uh, it's one of those stories that was on my list for a long time, and then, but it was really about you know late 2005, early 2006 that I started to actually uh, envision whether we could do a story like that. Years before, though, around 2002. Kevin said he started compiling newspaper stories about the crash. And when his editor signed off on the project, he really got going on it in late spring 2006. That's when he started the arduous act of tracking down documents and people 45 years later. When did it, um, when did you kind of know that you had something there? Because I assume that it as you were collecting interviews, you realized that there's so many stories within that story, obviously enough to fill 33 chapters. When did you kind of realize that, that this is going to be a big project? Uh, I think I think it was after I had talked to four or five people, and every one of them had di- different stories to tell and different attitudes about things and different... Um, just, you know, the, the crash was a different kind of presence in each of their lives. You know, and I'd sort of, I'd sort of been worried when I first started out that, well, maybe everybody's got the same thoughts about this, or maybe everybody's basically had the same experience. And it's true that all these people went through that same moment in time together, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I quickly discovered that 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 you know, once the, once past that moment in time, that their experiences, their their 
you know, the way it affected them and or didn't affect them and all that was it was very individual. And I think that's when I when I knew sort of that that people could go through the same thing and come out of it affected in different ways. Each person, each family affected by this horrific crash has their own story. And in 2007, Kevin told most of them, many for the first time, through the crossing. There were the Brantners, who lost six-year-old Mark and nine-year-old Kathy in the crash, only to lose another son, Johnny, in a car accident not even two months later. There was Colleen and Ladine Yetter, who slept in that morning and missed the bus. And there was their cousin, Jerry Hembry, who was on the bus and walked away from the crash with just a busted shoulder. There was nine-year-old Steve Larson. He was buried in his Cub Scout uniform. Meanwhile, his sister, 11-year-old Alice, was still in the hospital, recovering from her own injuries related to the crash, unaware that her little brother was gone. There was little Sherry Mitchell, six years old, whose mother had to carry her to the bus stop as she cried. She'd wanted to stay home that day from school to visit her dad in the hospital. She died in the crash. There was eight-year-old Randy Geisick, who got on the bus clutching wrapping paper for a Christmas gift he was going to wrap for his parents at school that day. He came to after the crash, missing a boot and the wrapping paper, but otherwise fine. There was the train engineer, Herbert Summers, who was at the helm of the Union Pacific Streamliner in his Oshkosh overalls. He would die in a separate train collision just a few years later, leaving his wife with a pain that she just couldn't bear. And there was 23-year-old Dwayne Harms. He was tall, thin, the father of a brand new baby girl named Linda. He was the janitor at Delta Elementary School, just outside Greeley. And he begrudgingly took on the job of school bus driver, shuttling kids in the tiny community of Auburn to and from school. He was behind the wheel of the bus that day, December 14th, 1961. There was also Jim Hitch. He was a 23-year-old general assignment reporter at the Greeley Tribune that day. And right around 8 a.m., when the school bus and train collided, he was in the newsroom. Uh, yes, I was I was at work. Uh, in, uh, it was fairly early in the morning. It was... Like I hadn't been there very long. The beat reporters were all out on their beats, and it was about 8.30, and we got a telephone tip, and I took off immediately. I got there. I couldn't tell if anybody had been there before, but there were bodies strewn about, all covered, so somebody had been there to do that. Um, And the only other person there at the time was was a funeral director who who had the uh, county ambulance contract that year and he was just he was just mesmerized i mean he wasn't doing anything i tried to talk to him he didn't he didn't respond um so i went i i was taking pictures and uh, pretty soon some some people from the little community where most of the kids got on the school bus 
started arriving, and some of them were walking around lifting blankets to see if they knew who the bodies belonged to. There'd been, there'd obviously been somebody there because the injured kids were all gone. They were uh, taken to the local hospital. It was, it was <laughs> deathly quiet. There wasn't anybody about except the one fellow that I, I told you about initially, and uh, it was really cold. It was, I don't remember exactly how cold, but it, it was single digit. Uh, temperature I'm sure and it had been really foggy that morning and and still there was some fog and overcast um, it it I mean the what I saw stayed with me for forever because I had I had three little kids of my own at home the oldest being five and a half the three daughters and uh, you know when you see the bodies of 20 children i mean it's it's something you've never seen and never hope to see again i reached out to jim because of a photo a truly heartbreaking photo it's of a woman named dorothy smock she's at the crash site and you can see school papers a book bag and a stray child's boot strewn around her she's bent down and lifting a blanket from one of the bodies, revealing the face of a young boy, her son, 10-year-old Bobby. Next to her is another woman, Ruby Baxter, holding her hands to her face in horror. Her 10-year-old son, Jerry, also died in the crash. And below that picture is Jim Hitch's name. Like he said, by the time Jim made it to the crash site, he was part of the second wave of people to come upon it, and as residents of Tiny Auburn trickled through to the horrific scene, Jim was there to report on what had just become the deadliest traffic accident in Colorado history. Jim and Loretta Ford were early on the scene. They came across the crash while Jim was driving Loretta to her house cleaning job. They had three boys on the bus, 9-year-old Bruce, 11-year-old Glenn, and 13-year-old Jimmy. Jimmy died. Joe Brantner was also on the scene soon, with farmer Albert Bindle. Brantner had Bindle take him home to grab his station wagon, and the two headed back out in separate vehicles. Though Brantner's two children, Mark and Kathy, had died in the crash, he set his grief aside to load injured children into his car and get them to the hospital. The initial scene sounds so frantic, but as Hitch said, as the injured children were taken away, that was replaced with a deathly quiet. And then, naturally, the question arose, how did this happen? Like I said earlier, as Kevin Vaughn tracked down documents related to the crash, he was able to piece together a picture of what that day, December 14th, and the following days were like. Dwayne Harms, the bus driver, was largely uninjured in the crash, with just a gash to his leg and a cut near his right temple. 
A few hours after the bus had collided with the train, Vaughn writes that Harms was sitting in a room at the Weld County Sheriff's Office, telling the Weld County District Attorney what had happened. It was soon called into question whether Harms had stopped at the railroad tracks. He always did, he said, but he couldn't exactly remember if he did that morning. Was his view of the tracks obscured? Well, I should say yes, that's true, Harms said, detailing that the windows were frosted over a little bit, and there were always some poles in the way of his view. The angle at which the tracks intersected with the road was also really severe, and it made it a little difficult to see. This became a point of contention, especially when Dwayne Harms went on trial for a manslaughter. Feelings toward Harms were mixed in the community at that point. Some families were angry. They were angry with Harms and thought he was at fault in the crash. Others, including the Larsons, who lost their son Steve, stood by Harms. Art Larson testified during the trial that he saw Harms stopped at the crossing and that he thought he'd seen the train coming. Farmer Albert Bindle said he did see Harms stop and he remembered the red glow of the school bus's brake lights. And 16-year-old Jerry Hembry, who was sitting in the seat behind Harms, testified that Harms had stopped. He remembered the bus stopping, and he remembered not seeing or hearing any train. Hembry also told that to Jim Hitch, right after the crash, from his hospital bed. He he was able to tell me that uh, he was sitting in the front of the bus, school bus, with the driver, not just one seat behind him and that the driver had stopped, opened the door. They both looked out the door. They didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything. And uh, the driver put the bus in gear, and before he cleared the tracks, the train hit the rear of the school bus. Almost, uh, it's kind of, it's hard to understand because the angle of the road crossing the railroad tracks was so severe uh, I mean, the the railroad tracks and the and the county road were were more more nearly parallel than they were perpendicular to each other, and so it really even in good weather it would have been hard to see down the the tracks from where he had to stop. Um, but the but the kid told me this story and. Uh, uh, about that part of it, and and he was appeared to be a really level-headed, nice nice young guy. You know, the parents were there were parents who lost uh, all of their kids in that crash, and they were you know really upset. We we were never able to talk to any of them really. They wouldn't they wouldn't answer phones. They wouldn't if you went out there. They wouldn't talk to you. They were mad. They were angry. Uh, but but so there was there were people who contended that that the bus driver had lied. Well, he hadn't lied because he had. There was more than one witness to the fact that he did stop. And uh, young Hembry took the stand and testified, and and the jury found the driver. Uh, not guilty, but he and he and his family 
left almost immediately after that because he'd been, I don't know if he'd been threatened, but he'd been visited by a couple of fathers that were yelling at him, I guess. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember those details, really. Fast forward a couple decades, and life had changed for a lot of people involved in the crash that December day. Families were forever altered, and they never forgot, but life seemed to go on. One day, in 1984, a rodeo cowboy walked into the administrative office of the Kersey School District to apply for a job. His wife, a teacher there, had told him they were looking for school bus drivers. So, Glenn Ford ended up driving a school bus, and he drove a school bus for 28 years, until his retirement about six years ago. It wasn't an obvious choice, he said. He never liked school to begin with, and here he was, driving a bus, to school. Just like Dwayne Harms had driven him to school. Glenn was the middle son of Loretta and Jim Ford. He was on the bus that day, and he survived with some pretty gnarly wounds to his face. His brother Bruce also made it. Jimmy, the oldest Ford boy, did not. Glenn said that that fall was the first time he rode the school bus ever. That was when a bunch of school districts in the area consolidated, and so the Auburn School, a little schoolhouse in the community, was shut down. So for the first time, Auburn kids were being bused into Greeley schools, and it just became part of everyday life. And then there was December 14th. It was just like any other morning. I remember going, we had to walk to the top of the hill from my house, which was, oh, 50, 75 yards. That's Glenn. And I'd walk to the hill, and we got on with... uh, Three girls over there, they were the white girls. They were, uh, Jackie was the oldest, Julie, or let's see, Jackie was the oldest. She would have been in Jimmy's grade. And then there was uh, Elaine in my grade. And Julie would have been in Bruce's grade or a year behind. But the two younger girls had got killed in the wreck. But we all met at that corner and got on the school bus. And I remember that morning I got on and I sat in the second seat from the front on the passenger side with a friend of mine, Alan Strongberger. Mm. So after that, we uh, took took off, made our route, and uh, we had, let's see, there had been one stop, which had been Larson's, and then we went on around the corner, and Mm. all on the reps, boys, but they didn't ride that day. Mm. Then we kind of turned around in the Freeman's yard and went back and picked up uh, Brantner's. They had uh, two kids got on that day. There were supposed to be three, but only two got on. Mm-hmm. And uh, went from Brantner's and picked up uh, Baxter, and Gerald Baxter, and the next stop was our uh, where we crossed the track, so that's where the wreck happened. The bus was running, 80, or the train was running 80 miles an hour coming out of, uh, I think, Burlington, Illinois, some direction back that way, and it was running behind. So I remember, first thing I remember, I I could hear my mom and dad, and I heard, uh, I heard mom say, my babies, mm-hmm. and uh, they seen me coming out of uh, the front of the bus. 
They could see me coming out. I could hear them, but I couldn't see them because I guess I still knocked off, knocked out, but I had all the skin was knocked off my face and mm-hmm. cuts and stuff on my face. And I remember them saying that. The next thing I remember, uh, Mr. Browner, who just lost two kids, uh, he was driving his station wagon. He got got as many as he could in that station wagon, and he said, we'll get you to the hospital as soon as we can. Glenn said that his injuries weren't too severe, and he was out of the hospital pretty soon. Bruce, on the other hand, was unconscious for five days. He woke up on the day Jimmy was buried. Glenn went on to have three boys of his own, and he's a grandfather now, living on a slice of the Ford family farm where the boys lived at the time of the crash. He carries no ill will toward Dwayne Harms at all. The crash happened. There's nothing you can do about that, he said. And as a fellow former school bus driver, Glenn has a unique perspective. He knows what Dwayne's mornings were like, driving rowdy grade schoolers to and from school. When you when you started driving, did you think about Dwayne that much or think about the crash at all? Uh, only when you come to railroad tracks, you think about it every time. And I still, I drove the bus so long, I'll come onto railroad tracks that have the arms and not a stop sign. Mm-hmm. And I'll stop at them tracks, even in my own vehicle, because I drove it so long, you know, and mm-hmm. it just automatically stop and I don't have to stop anymore. This is a school bus. So I just go by the signs. But even even now you'll be, I think about it probably daily when I pull up to a stop sign and I had a crossing. They don't even use the, the tracks anymore. As a matter of fact, it's the same one that the school bus come down. It, it's right north of my place. So it'd be a mile and a half from where the wreck was. I'll stop there even though they don't even use the track no more, but the sign's there. So mm. I still stop at it. Mm. Think about it probably daily. Every time I cross the railroad track, it probably comes to my mind. Kevin Vaughn said something similar. After immersing himself in the story of this deadly crash, he still thinks about the crossing all the time. I certainly think that there are more... Um you know, more crossings that are designed better today. There are more warning devices today. But there are still plenty of those old country crossings with just a, a cross buck sign on them. You know, the law then and the law now with school buses is the same. And, you know, I think about it every, just about every day I see a school bus when I'm out driving. And, and uh, almost all of them have a bumper sticker on the back that says, you know, I stop, uh, I stop at all railroad, this, this bus stops at all railroad crossings. And, you know, to me, that's part of the legacy of the accident is trying to learn from that and and hope that nothing like that ever happens again, you know. If you want to learn more about the school bus crash of 1961, I'd urge you again to head online and read Kevin's amazing series that really captures the heartbreak of it and the resilience of the people it affected. You can do that by going to thecrossingstory.com. So after the crossing ran, a family member of two of the victims was actually able to raise enough money for a permanent memorial near the crash site. 
The large stone reads, Near this spot, December 14, 1961, at 8 a.m., a passenger train bound for Denver collided with a Greeley school bus, ripping it in half, killing 20 children, and injuring 16. This monument is dedicated to the memory of the children lost that cold morning. They shall never be forgotten. Then there are their names, the names of the 20 children who never got to grow up. Linda Ailes, 10. Jerry Baxter, 10. Kathy Brantner, 9. Mark Brantner, 6. Calvin Craven, 10. Ellen Craven, 8. Cindy Dorn, 11. Jimmy Ford, 13. Melody Freeman, 8. Kathy Heimbuck, 12. Pam Heimbuck, 9. Steve Larson, 9. Mary Lozano, 10. Sherry Mitchell, 6. Jan Paxton, 11. Marilyn Paxton, 13. Bobby Smock, 10. Linda Walso, 13. Elaine White, 11. Julene White, 8. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Way It Was, Back at the Crossing. <laughs>